0: per minute is a weekly radio show from the new york city chapter of the democratic socialists of america recorded live at wbai 99.5 in brooklyn every wednesday at 9 p.m rpms about doing the work the work to build a democratic socialist future Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc.
1: Hey, what's up, New York City? It's Amy Wilson. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live on WBAI. We are a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 95,000 members nationwide. New York City DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000 plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Once again, my name is Amy Wilson. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a worker and a member of the RPM Production Collective, and I have a good comrade in the studio for tonight's show.
0: Hello, New York. I'm Chris Carr. He, he pronouns. Happy to be here, Amy.
1: And we are joined live by Chris Brooks and Stephanie Bazile, two labor organizers on the front lines of some of today's most exciting worker-led campaigns. We'll be discussing trends in labor organizing as seen in groundbreaking victories from workers at Amazon, Starbucks, Apple stores, Trader Joe's, and much more. What in labor history can help us understand this current moment, and how do we keep up the momentum? We will be taking your calls at the end of tonight's show, and tonight we especially want to hear from all of our union members and organizing workers in the audience. Get ready for a great show, and we hope you'll join the conversation later But first, the headlines with Jack Devine.
2: What's good, New York? This is Jack Devine with the weekly headlines brought to you by The Thorn. Four deaths have been confirmed as a result of the week-long heat wave that swept New York City earlier this month. UPS drivers and warehouse employees protested in front of a UPS customer service center in Brooklyn on Thursday, demanding better working conditions after several workers experienced heat-related illnesses during the heat wave. At Rikers, nearly 200 detainees deemed to be heat-sensitive were held in an intake building without air conditioning, some for multiple days. The MTA's chief financial officer warned that the MTA will likely run out of federal COVID relief funds earlier than anticipated due to slower-than-projected returns to pre-pandemic ridership levels. New York City officials declared monkeypox a public health emergency on Saturday, the day after Governor Hochul declared a statewide disaster emergency. As of Friday, there were 1,300 positive cases confirmed in the city. New York City evictions have increased every month this year, totaling at least 1,527 Marshall-executed evictions to date. Starting today, 2,000 of the city's automated speed cameras will operate 24 hours a day, an expansion from the current schedule of 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. In elections news, a Republican-backed PAC has spent $7,500 this month in digital ads supporting incumbent Senator Kevin Parker, District 21 Flatbush, and his race against DSA-endorsed challenger David Alexis. New York City's District Commission will hold five public hearings over the next month to receive feedback on their proposed new City Council district map. In labor news, workers at a Trader Joe's in Haley, Massachusetts voted to unionize with Trader Joe's United on Thursday. Workers at Trader Joe's stores in Minneapolis and Colorado are preparing for future elections with the National Labor Relations Board. Will this continue to spread across the nation like Starbucks United? We'll have our eyes and ears on that here on RPM. Now back to our regular scheduled programming.
0: Thank you, Jack. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethornnyc.substack.com. Now let's get back to our scheduled programming. Let's welcome our live guests in the studio tonight. We're joined by two people, two wonderful great comrades and labor organizers, Chris Brooks and Stephanie Basile. So say hi to the people.
3: Hey, thanks so much for uh, having us. It's always great to be back on my favorite radio program.
4: Hello, really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, so let's get started. So, Stephanie, can you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and what brought you into the labor movement?
4: Absolutely. My name is Stephanie Basile, Sheher, and I am currently the organizing coordinator for the News Guild, which is a part of Communications Workers of America. And the News Guild organizes journalists, media workers, nonprofit workers, and more recently, tech workers. Um, And, you know, my background is I've been at the News Guild about five years, but I actually got my start in the mid-aughts in the industrial workers of the world. And what really got me um, interested in in pursuing that and getting involved in the labor movement is is that I really see the labor movement as a way to pursue long-term goals for structural change, um, but with immediate pragmatic results so i was involved in iww efforts in the mid-aughts in new york city to win back wages for unpaid overtime for warehouse workers i was also involved in an in earlier wave to organize starbucks workers and then from 2009 to 2017 organized retail workers here in new york with the retail wholesale and department store union and then from 2017 so now organizing journalists with the news field
0: yeah well we're, we're lucky to have you Great oh, to be here. Sorry, Amy.
1: No problem. We're, we're so thrilled to have you. You're going to hear it twice. Um, and we're excited to hear, um, your experience in the context of the news that we're reacting to, um, about late, the labor movement, um, this, this year. Um, now we'll turn to Chris Brooks, who has already flattered us. <laughs> Um, uh, by saying we're his favorite radio program. Chris, Um, you're a big fan. We're big fans of, our, of yours, too. You've been on the show multiple times. But for anybody who's new to your work or new to you as a comrade, could you just give us a reminder about who you are and your background in um, the labor movement?
3: Yeah. Uh, so Chris Brooks, he, him. I am a DSA member in Brooklyn, and uh, I work for the News Guild of New York, which is the flagship local of the News Guild. Um, where we represent like over 5,000 media workers in the New York greater region. Um, And I got involved in labor because in 2010 I was working for CSL Plasma, which is a literal blood sucking corporation. It's a place that foreign working class people go to donate plasma and then you get hit by a truck in the parking lot and they charge you like 500,000% more to get it back into your body in the hospital. Um, and the conditions were really terrible. And I talked to my coworkers one day about like, Hey, like, what if we got a union in here? That sounds like a really cool idea. Right. And I went home that night and I called every union in the phone book. Not a single one ever called me back. I should say. And the next day I went into work, we had security there, never had security before. They met me at the door. They walked me to my locker. I was fired on the spot, had no idea what my rights were, had no, I had never heard of the national labor relations board, didn't know what an unfair labor practice charge was. And I just committed to say, like, you know, this is what it's like for working people. I've got to learn how to organize and I want to help other people learn how to do the same. So since 2010, that's what I've been
0: doing.
1: Thanks, Chris. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener sponsor WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. If you're just tuning in, I'm Amy Wilson. I'm here with my comrade, Chris Carr, and two labor organizers, Chris and Stephanie, live in the studio. Today, we're talking about momentum organizing and new ways of understanding labor. So let's get down to it.
0: So, so Chris, you, you recently so wrote this sort of expansive article in These Times, um, like covering so this recent wave of, of interest in, in labor organizing that we're seeing. And so we've really seen this burst of new interest in union organizing uh, at companies across the country, from Starbucks to Amazon, and quite recently, the, the successful unionization of workers at a Trader Joe's in Massachusetts, and the list keeps growing. So in your own words, like how would you describe this kind of activity we, we've been seeing on the ground?
3: Yeah, so I, I think it's really important to understand like that, that there one, there is an organizing wave, right? So the National Labor Relations Board says that union elections are up fifty-seven percent in just the first half of twenty twenty-two. It's even more than that now. Um, you know, over two, you know, just in the last six months, we've had over two hundred Starbucks stores unionize, right? Um and I think it's important to recognize that this isn't random. Some people describe it as spontaneous, but there are actually factors that are that 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 are contributing to this, right? It's an alignment, I think, of objective and subjective factors, right? So the objective factors is that, you know, there hasn't been a recovery from the Great Recession um, for working class people in this country. You know, we've seen wages continue to stagnate while costs have skyrocketed, including rent, especially and other kinds of um, basic necessities. Um, that's, you know, even more true now than inflation is in the double digits. And of course, young people are saddled with just egregious and enormous and unforgivable and immoral and, you know, like uh, evil uh, student loan debt, right? Um And then on top of that, we've had the pandemic, you know, um, so we are the first and remain the only country to have a, over a million people die from COVID. And we've really seen in this period that bosses don't care about us. So I think there's like a real strong series of objective factors that are contributing to this. And then there's the subjective factors, which is, you know, that there's been a real political awakening in our country, especially among young people. And I think if you look back in the last 10 years, you can see some really important moments where people are being engaged and galvanized in really new ways, right? So you occupy Wall Street, the movement for black lives, the Bernie Sanders campaign, the rise of DSA itself is I think a really important data point for all of this. And then when you look at like where young people are, especially, but where working class people are in a lot of these um, stores is that they're recognizing that my life isn't getting any better. I actually have like a lower life expectancy than my parents and grandparents. I have lower, uh, less fewer options. And I work at a really crummy job, so I might as well organize while I'm here. Um, and I think that that's uh, contributing in a really major way to the decision to organize. And it makes it a little bit different from, you know, when we've organized in the past. Like often union organizers like myself were trained in this like really incremental and methodical, staff-driven, slow, cautious approach to organizing where you have to have tons and tons of conversations with all the workers and identify and recruit what we call the organic leaders, like the most respected members, of you know, of the workforce You recruit them to a committee and then you move really slowly to do these escalating actions to you build towards like a supermajority on on cards before you would go to an election. You would never in a million years go to a union election with only like 30 to 50 percent of the workforce on cards. You'd have to have like 70 to 80 percent because the employers are just going to cream you. You know, Um, that's the expectation. But what we're seeing right now is people breaking those rules, right? You know, we're seeing workers getting fired and that not slowing them down, right? We're seeing workers go on strike before they even win their contract. There's just this um, this level of enthusiasm and energy that's permeating across workplaces that is translating into worker-led activity where workers themselves are seeing other workers take action and winning, and it's galvanizing them to do the same and follow in their footsteps. So it's a really exciting moment, I think, to be organizing and it creates a lot of opportunities for unions that are tuned into this and are trying to think about how do we take advantage of this moment.
4: Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And what I'll add is that organizing begets organizing, right? And the best way to shift the culture is to just do it. So, you know, 10 and so years ago when I was at the retail workers union there was this idea that you you can't organize non-food retail, you can't organize customer service. And you've seen people try to shift the cultures in ways that are not grassroots, right? Like we're going to take out a billboard. We're going to park a truck with like a big slogan on it outside a grocery store. Right. But um, you know, the the first people that organize on the ground that shift the narrative. And I think we've also really seen this with journalists organizing at the news guild 10 years ago, journalists didn't organize because journalists don't organize. Right. I can't be biased. I can't have a union. And then Law 360 did it in 2016. Los Angeles Times did it in 2018. And now nobody questions it. Now journalists say, why do not Why do you not have a union? Five years ago, journalists didn't strike. Never going to do that. Now, when they see it, not only do they not say, I don't want to do that, but they actually open it. Like, journalists that never would have been open to even unionizing 10 years ago are now talking about strikes in a positive way. And we didn't do a PR offensive, but literally Thousands of people on the ground are shifting the narrative by taking part in the work themselves. And and as Chris says, showing others, it can be done.
1: Thank you, Stephanie, for bringing up um, as well, not only retail and customer service and warehouse uh, organizing as the focus of Chris Brooks article is and is the focus of the show largely is. But also organizing in professions that are considered to be more, I don't know what the most appropriate way to describe it is, but at one point people would have said white collar, right? Like journalists, media, graduate students, like, um, our host tonight, uh, Chris Carr, um, nonprofits, museums. There, there had been a union wave in these sort of smaller shops within the last five to eight years that I think is also a factor that's contributing to what we're, we're seeing now because what, what's really cool and what I really like about media worker organizing, and maybe we'll do another show on this in the future, but what I really like about media worker organizing is that once media workers are organized and they love unions... They talk about it. Right. And they write about it and they tweet about it and they talk on their podcasts about it. And they they contribute to the sense that, well, a union is something that you should have as a worker and a union is something that you can has have as a worker. So there's also this sort of cross pollination effect that happens between workers in different types of fields that I think it's really important to keep in mind rather than pitting uh, different types of workers against each other, which, as we know, is a, a time honored boss tactic. So speaking of tactics, I'd love to dig a little bit more into what is differentiating these newer campaigns from the traditional labor orthodoxy. You started to speak to that a little bit in your comments, Chris, but I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. What is different um, in these campaigns than what the received wisdom has been? And conversely, what is the same? Are there any sort of eternal truths or things that are proving themselves um, through these different sort of kettles of fire?
3: Yeah, it's it's such an interesting question. Um, I think the best thing to do is to look at where people are winning right now and how they're winning, right? And so on the one hand, I think it's good to recognize that um, where people are winning is when is where union staff is playing a supporting role and is not getting in the way, right? So the more that workers are actually in the driver's seat, the more likely you are to win. Now, that's not something new, like Labor Notes has been saying that for decades, right? But I think what you see is like the combination of Of, there's some, you know, um, constellation of unions that are willing to do that. Like, I'm like, you know, nobody knew who Workers United was essentially, like, you know, a year ago, like, if you were to ask, like, this, like, very small SEIU affiliate, they took a big risk with organizing, you know, the upstate, the New York, upstate New York, um, uh, Starbucks stores. And once they won, they unleashed something that they couldn't control. Starbucks workers across the country started reaching out to them and saying, like, I want to do that too. And naturally, because like, you know, if you're, if you're, a, if you're workers united, you have like four or five staff, what, like 12 staff, maybe nationally, the whole country. Um, and so you don't have enough staff to, to meet all of the incoming needs, right? All the incoming calls, all the incoming interests. And so they really had to adapt by putting workers forward and workers themselves were adapting and, adu- and creating the tools that they needed to teach each other how to win. And I think that that's really, um, what, what Stephanie, I think has done, uh, you know, you know, has created what I personally believe to be the absolute best member organizer program I've ever seen nationally. And it's because you know, we have this infrastructure in, in the union that we're capable of scaling up because when you have explosive growth, which is not a problem anyone that I know the labor movement had right last year, you know, um, you know, outside of the guild, um, it, you, you can't scale your way. Uh, you can't snap your way out of the, out of the problems of scale that you're going to reach very quickly. Like right now in my local you know, we have almost tripled in size of the number of members we have. We have over 30 shops in bargaining right now, and over two dozen of them are first contracts. We are, we are currently bargaining more first contracts than many international unions might have seen in like the last two decades, right? And so I think that like, the, and that's really time intensive. It's resource intensive, right? If you don't have members really leading on that, um, then you're, you're not going to be able to be successful. And so, you know, I think part of what has to happen here is recognizing that there are workers with a ton of enthusiasm. They're willing to withstand the assaults that the boss is putting on them in in like a deeper way. We don't have to be necessarily as careful or cautious as we were in the past, but those strong organizing principles um, still have to be maintained. And I don't know anyone who's done that better than Stephanie. Well,
4: that's that's quite nice, Chris. I, I do want, I want to talk about that. I just want to go back for a minute I, I, I want to rethink the framing that we keep hearing about the traditional versus new. I mean, first of all, we all want to be new, right? Like, you don't see anyone getting headlines saying, we did it the old-fashioned, boring way. Um, I think there's capitalist values behind that, and then we all want to be the first. We want to be unique. And, you know, I remember 10 years ago, Fight for 15, claiming this is the biggest strike of low-wage workers ever. And I think we need to really question as socialists, like, why like why do we have first of all it's not true but why do we have to be the first and i actually think it's a lot more um organic and nuanced than that there are best practices in organizing that we know work there are always moments where we probably can't follow those if i had been working on the staten island amazon election i i I am a very by the book organizer i don't think i would have underground built to an 80% supermajority, right? So I, I don't think that there's this dichotomy. I actually think there's best practices and then there's moments where we pivot. Um, and I also think in a way, it's, it's going back to the earlier days of organizing. I don't think that in the 1930s in a Flint, Michigan, um, you know, auto factory that they were doing like two hour inoculation trainings with everyone, right? I think that people had relationships, um, people were agitated and that was enough to carry the day. And that's what we're seeing again.
1: That's such an interesting point, Stephanie, about uh the contrast between the, the the false dichotomy, let's say, between the traditional and and the new. I think it's kind of like yin and yang. There's always a little bit of, of one in in the other. Um for those who are just joining us tonight, this is Revolutions per Minute. We're live in the studio with labor organizers Stephanie and Chris, and we have much more exciting conversation to come, but and we will be taking your calls as well. So please get ready to join the Foundation, especially if you're out there tonight, you are a union member, or you'd like to be a union member. Maybe you work at one of these corporations we've discussed tonight. Maybe you have a friend, roommate, son, daughter, neighbor who does. You're really interested in... Um, getting involved and getting uh, organized. We'd love to hear from you with any questions that you might have. So please keep listening and we'll read out our studio number in just a few minutes. Um, but first, we do have to take a minute and pause from our conversation to ask you to please support this listener-sponsored station that is carrying a conversation between four socialists who are labor organizers, workers, union members, about what it takes to build a strong, fighting, militant worker movement in this country. In the second half of our show, we'll be talking about how the union movement and labor are not uh, operating in a vacuum. We're deeply connected to other social movements and movements for justice. And that's just one of the many reasons why we truly believe in worker organization and as you're hearing tonight, uh, one thing that is really inspirational for workers is hearing successful stories of worker organization. It can make a big difference. It can inspire change. It can inspire t- people to take risks and do courageous things. So it's incredibly important to support the type of media outlets that will put this on the air. You just heard Stephanie Basile talking about how the traditional and time-tested are of. Of value, just as well as the new and untested. And what could be more traditional and time-tested than talking about labor on the radio? So if you think this is cool, if you support what we're doing, please pick up your phone or your tablet or your laptop and go to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or you can go to WBAI.org. Send us a couple dollars if you can just to say thanks for talking about unions. Thanks for inspiring workers. I appreciate what you're doing. We want to see more of it. And tell them Revolutions Per Minute sent you. That's 212-209-2950 or WBAI.org. Thank you.
0: Yeah, so I, I was just thinking over what what Stephanie just said about this false dichotomy between, uh, between this old, in the old methods and, and the new methods and how a lot how a lot of what what we what's claimed to be new is is, is sort of been happening for decades uh, uh, in the shop floor and it, and it reminded me of, of of there's this one article i was reading about one of the members of the organizing committee uh at the alu the amazon La- labor union and he was mentioning how like uh, how in a very important sort of blueprint that they were working off of was actually this very old like uh uh, like piece of literature, uh, organizing methods in the steel industry by William Foster, who was like, it's like old communist, and like in the 30s, who who was, uh, who was trying to sort of organize the the industrial workers of his day, and so I, so I I found that like really like really really enlightening about sort of providing some some lineage between these old uh, label upsurges of the past and what we're seeing now, and so Chris, I wanted to bring this to you about what do you when you sort of look over the sort of what's going on today and also the expanse of, of sort of like 20th century, like U.S. labor history. So what are some of the similarities and differences uh, does this recent rise in labor militancy have with sort of labor's more famous upsurges of the past? Like namely that the the Congress of Industrial Organizations in the 30s uh, and also the sort of the, the rise of public sector unionism uh, in the 60s and 70s.
3: Yes, I love this, this question. Uh, I think it's so interesting to think about, you know, um, when, when we talk about this cautious, methodical approach to organizing, I really think it, it became hammered out on the left um, in the 90s, actually, because we were in such a place of retreat in labor. Um, you know, like I think about, you look at the experience of the UE, like United Electrical Workers, you know, um, one of the most militant democratic unions, progressive unions, in the country you know they've um they were expelled from the afl um for refusing to kick out the communists um and you know they've seen their membership just hammered you know i interviewed um one one ue representative at one point and they said that uh, during the 90s they were um, responsible for organizing around 200 plant closures that they faced and you know due to globalization right and so i think we always have to be you know, tuned in to the fact that you can be the best organizer with the best method and still lose, right? Conditions matter. And so when we talk about those objective, subjective conditions, you know, it's really important for socialists for us to be analyzing those constantly and thinking about them. And conditions aren't stagnant. They change over time, right? So the conditions that were true in the 90s are not the conditions that are true now. And they weren't the conditions that were true in the 30s. And I think William C. Foster is fascinating. He's, um, you know, um, often held up as like one of the greatest organizers in our country in the last hundred years. And, um, you know, uh, methods for organizing the steel industry is, is, you know, was the blueprint often, you know, they, they talk about it that way for the CIO. And if you read it, like, he has, like, a couple of throwaway lines, basically, that are, like, we interpret to be about list work, you know, like, like, creating a list of everybody in the workplace and, like, having conversations with them systematically. But he actually spends a lot more time talking about, like, there's this new thing called the radio, like, that we need to get everybody listening to, and, like, we need to get workers on, and we need to, like, put speakers on cars and drive around the plants. Um, and I think that, you know, and he talks a lot about enthusiasm, like, the enthusiasm of the workers has to be there. And I think that what Foster was looking at in the 30s was that working people were tired, they were fed up, and they were ready to fight. And and I think we see that, right? Like in terms of like what actually happened on the ground, you know? So I I love the example of Flint. The Flint sit-down strike is like a pivotal moment in U.S. labor history, right? You know, in 1936, prior to Flint, the UAW had only, they had less than 30,000 members and 16 contracts, 10 of which were in one seat city, right? Toledo, Ohio. After the Flint sit-down strike, they had, you know, by the end of 1937, so just a year, they had 400,000 members and more than 4,000 contracts from auto and parts companies all across the country. And I promise you, they did not get those by a bunch of staff going out and having organizing conversations with everyone, right? That just wasn't the case. It was that workers themselves were seeing other workers winning, and they were taking it on themselves to organize their workplace. And what they're really, and, and, and I think, you know, a part that we're missing today is the proliferation of strikes. Like after the sit-down strike, there were just massive sit-down strikes all across the country. In Detroit itself, retail workers all along the central streets leading to downtown Detroit just started sitting down on the job and demanding that they have union recognition and and wage increases. There's a story, a really famous story um, during that period, where the governor who came in, like, and was signing with the workers and was trying to like negotiate this deal between the you know between the auto company and 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 the union. got frustrated because his dinner wasn't being delivered in his hotel. And he found out that the reason was, is because the the hotel workers were engaged in a sit down strike in the lobby. And so, you know, it was just this explosion of activity that was happening, this energy and the auto workers um, had smart leaders and engaged, you know, members who were ready to, 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 to grab onto that, to sustain that energy and channel it into the union. Right. And I think that this comes down to the question of risk assessment, right? We have a lot of, really cautious union leaders across the country who are more interested in sustaining the institution they have than building a movement, right? And I think what we need is movement oriented leadership, right, which we have in some of our unions, like the News Guild's fantastic, you know, John Schloes, this reformer that was elected, the International, Susan Craba and our local, or another reformer who's elected, Sarah Nelson with the flight attendants, right? You know, there are definitely leaders across the country who are ready to seize on this moment. And, 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 support the workers on the front lines. Workers United's doing a great job at Starbucks on that, right? And I think the frustration we heard from the leaders on the ground at Amazon Labor United, uh, you know, at ALU, um, was that they didn't feel like they got the kind of support that they needed and they didn't see it happening in Bessemer either when they went down there, but the kind of worker-centered, um, organizing that, that is necessary to win these kinds of campaigns.
0: Yeah, there's a beautiful, I think, like picture you sort you lay out in the article where, Well, like after, after the, like the, the plant sent down strikes that the CAIO was basically just like dumping like union cards, uh, at the gates of of all these factories. And, and, and as you said, like the membership exploded after that. Like it was really like this, this, this one moment, it's kind of this mass, fantastic release of, of potential energy becoming kinetic.
3: Yeah, I, and so I really can't recommend, uh, Mary Heaton Borst's book, Labor's New Millions, enough. Um, she was one of the greatest labor journalists of the 20th century, and she was there, like, she, like, describes, like, getting let in through a window in Flint, like, by the, the workers' militia to go and, like, like, interview them, like, in the, you know, while they're, they're sitting down. Um, and, uh, and I love just the title of the book. It's not Labor's New Thousands, it's Labor's New Millions. The labor movement grew by millions of workers being in unions over the course of just a few short years. Right. And that was largely went through strikes. It was largely one through militant activity. And it was largely one through the self-directed activity of workers themselves with the support of the unions. Right. And so she has this great line about how the CIO didn't unleash all this energy because it couldn't do it. They were just there to, to capitalize on it. They were just there to capture it. Right. Um, and build on it. The energy had already been set there by the objective and subjective conditions of the time.
1: Wow, I could really listen to us talk about this all day. I, I love the labor history piece, and you know, I think it just again comes back to Stephanie's comments and Chris, what you wrote in the article, right? It, it, how new really is this uh, moment that that we're seeing? Um, so now I, I'd love to ask um, about other social movements and the way in which labor and this new—there, I just said it—but this new wave of uh, worker organizing. Can contribute to some of the other social movements of our day. Um, in your introductory comments, Chris, you you mentioned things like Occupy Wall Street, um, the movement for Black Lives, the tenants' rights movement. I would add on, you know, the eco-socialist movement, the risk of climate collapse, and of course, huge uh, um, catastrophic events like the fall of Roe v. Wade and the loss of access to safe uh, and legal abortion for millions of people many of whom are working class um, how do how does worker organizing support these other movements for social justice and what's the relationship there um, let's go to you Stephanie first
4: yeah I mean I think that in, in terms of the connection with social movements like like workers are everyone right workers come from all different communities um, you know when I was with the retail workers union, we worked very closely with Fight for 15, with Black Lives Matter. Um, Now, you know, even at the news guild where journalists traditionally don't get engaged politically, during the 2020 uprisings, we saw them taking collective action against racist news reporting, right? So I think that more and more, like workers are understanding themselves as all of the, you know, all of their identities and all of the ways in which they um, engage with the world. So I, Yeah, I think that we're adopting, like, the the broadest view of social justice unionism, that it's not, um, you know, squarely focused on what happens in the workplace, but what happens outside the workplace. And and also, I think it's been really interesting, uh, you know, in our union, like, really embracing uh, trans, queer and non-binary workers and and leading on those issues and the way that we, you know, create spaces that are welcome to all workers, a kind of uh, contract language we negotiate. So, I think it's been really exciting to see um you know like i said broad social justice unionism that um embraces all of those issues
3: and and i i think that the news guild um has really done a great job in this way like we created very quickly coming out of the gate um even even before you know once we had the draft decision there was a move to create a space for members to come together to start talking about what does this mean for us as workers and how are we going to fight back on it so there's been a, um, uh, a, a you know, um, a working group in our local and we're not just in our local, excuse me, across the across the national of um, that meets every other week. And um, one of the first things we did was to come up with bargaining demands. Right. So we came up with a list of bargaining demands, you know, to basically say that no matter what state you are in, you know, whether they're criminalizing or restricting abortion access or you know, or gender affirming health care, um, we're going to force our employers to still provide that and to still cover the cost of it to cover the cost of having to travel to other states or having dependents travel to other states that have access to that health care that they need. Um, and then still maintain, making sure that it's private, that people can't be discriminated against, um, and that we can publicly fight on this, right? Because all of those issues, you know, you don't just go to work and become a worker. That means you're no longer a human being. It doesn't mean you no longer face, you know, structural or systemic racism. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're no longer um, uh, inhibited by all of the right-wing policies that are being promulgated across the country. Um, and so, you know, I think we really start with where workers are in the workplace and and taking the boss to our, you know, taking the fight to our immediate boss. But then we're also in a bigger fight with bosses, plural, right? Like the bosses across the country, the bosses that rule the world and and connecting those dots, I think, is, is really, really important. Um, So after we put together the the um, bargaining, you know, kind of like initial first drafts initial proposals and like information requests and all the fun things that you can do when you have a union, um, you know, we invited other unions to come to the table and um, to learn what we're doing and how we're doing it and to encourage them to do the same. I think unions are actually really well positioned right now to fight back on a lot of these issues. What we need is more leadership and we need that leadership to come from the top and the bottom. We need our, you know, we need rank and file workers to push for it in their workplaces and to push their union leadership to take a stand on it. And we need union leaders who are willing to work with their, their, you know, their own members to to, to make it front and center in all of our fights.
1: Yeah. And when you talk about, you know, leadership from the bottom and rank and file militancy and, and worker led movements, that's that's another thing that socialists have been agitating for for as long as there have been socialists in the labor movement. So I'm really interested to hear how that's uh, playing out for you and your union. You know, um, you've mentioned that um, member engagement is really a priority for you right now. And perhaps that's a, a, a lesson for others and an ingredient in the current success of the News Guild. So let's hear from you, Stephanie. Um, what, what is that program and and what do you do and, and why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I, th-
4: I think the best role for, you know, both like social justice-minded activists and union staff is to primarily think of ourselves as teachers and think of ourselves as coaching and prepping workers so that we eventually move out of the picture. So when we first um, had a, like the beginning of this media organizing wave in early 2018, it became very clear to us very quickly that there was no way we could staff this huge surge in organizing. So what we did is we started just doing things together. And we would bring a member into the field, run an NLRB election, win an NLRB election, and coach them through every step of the process. Then that member in turn would go do the same thing with another group and bring a member with them. Um, and so in the beginning, we did a lot of deep organizing with one staffer and one member. And the idea was teaching our skills out to others. And we were able to do some really great deep training with a lot of people to the point where now we there's been about 7,000 workers organized with the News Guild in the past five years. And there's no way that could have happened with just the the small number of staff we have at the the National Guild. Um, Beyond that, when we thought about scaling up, you know, initially what we realized after the first few years of this member organizer program, which is what we call it, you know, we realized if we're gonna scale up, we can't necessarily do this like staff to member one to one ratio, right? We have to think of a different way to do it. So now what we've done is we basically have a small group system where Members get paired with six to eight other members from around the country, and they all support each other horizontally, meet once a month, set goals together, track their skills and support each other in that way so that there's no longer just one staffer overseeing everyone. So I think the exciting thing about this is that we're always figuring out and still figuring out. right? We haven't gotten there yet, but we're trying to figure out how do we balance scaling up? with maintaining deep organizing. I think that's always the challenge, right? And we have this incredible moment. Again, us as staff organizers, how do we capture this moment to just multiply our skills out and share everything we know out? So we have this model, learn it, do it, teach it, where what we encourage all of our member activists to do is to teach it eventually, right? So for example, a one-on-one conversation, I learn how to do it. I go to a workshop on it or see someone else do it. Then I do a bunch of one-on-ones with my coworkers. But then most importantly, I teach other people to do it, right? I bring someone with me to learn from, from me. And what we typically run into our member activists is if they do all the work themselves, right? And then they get burned out and annoyed that they're doing all the work themselves. And they don't really know, they, they post a message in a chat with 30 people saying who wants to do this and no one volunteers. So the idea of, of teach it is to really show people how the skill, right, of teaching other people to do something and actually delegating and having a follow up plan with accountability so that they do do it. So this is what we're trying to work toward, right? We're, we're still getting there, but really how do we learn it, do it, teach it? And, and one um, story I like to share is at the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago in June, um, we put together two different workshop sessions on learn and do it, teach it. And uh, of course I didn't do them. I prepped other members to run it. And so there were two sessions of the same workshop on a Friday and then a Saturday. And so the members who ran it on Friday told me that in that workshop, they recruited two people from the audience to then co-facilitate with them the next day. And I thought, this is brilliant, this is a brilliant application of learn it, do it, teach it. So, um, you know, I think that a lot of times I see union staffers like to be the ones in the room yelling at management and slamming their fists at the table. We wanna feel good about ourselves and feel good about our skill set. So I think there's actually a psychological element of us feeling like we're being most successful when we're not at the center of attention. Um, I don't want managers to even know who I am. I want to be prepping workers to go and resolving issues with management and to be organizing their coworkers. Uh, so we're still trying to work towards this and, um, you know, figure it out. But we have hundreds of trained members now who know how to organize and can coach other people how to organize and are completely committed to building this movement. And that's what we want to keep going.
3: Yeah, if, if I can just add very quickly two things to this. One is that um, I've, I've never seen someone who is as committed to having workers in every room as Stephanie. Like, literally, like, I've been pushed so much on this because the question, like, we're always saying, like, hey, we're going to do this, this, and this, and this for the plan. And the first question Stephanie's going to ask is, like, okay, great, like, what workers are you bringing to do all of that, right? Like, who are you showing and demonstrating how to do this, right? And so it's this constant process of of having to push each other on this because, like, even a staff, it's so easy to default. Right. To this idea of like, I just got to get these things done. There's like, you know, the world's on fire. Right. Um, and then of course the member leaders do it too. Right. So like we're all having to constantly push each other on it. But the other, and I think this is really critical is that the common practice in the labor movement right now is you go, you know, like I said, you go into the, to a shop to organize it, you know, like a Trader Joe's maybe. And in, and let's say like that the campaign gets stalled out. Well, what does the union do? It just, it just pulls up its stakes and leaves town. Right. And it, and it doesn't talk to, to anybody anymore. And then those workers are just left there. Right. And I think that with the member organizer program that Stephanie's built is like, you know, a campaign might get stalled out in an individual shop, but then those workers just go to work on other media campaigns. It's so phenomenal, right? So if you're a committed rank and file organizer, and just because something isn't, you know, because things hit a wall in your shop, doesn't mean that you are no longer a union activist or organizer and that you don't have a lot more to contribute. And that investment we make in you as a rank and file organizer isn't lost, right? Because they can go on to continue to organize um, their colleagues, and, you know, across the industry and all these other shops, and it's just—it's it, ridiculous. I that think like, that's just not the practice in unions right now. It, you know, the practice is just—you know—to um, tell workers what to do and kind of move them around like chess pieces on a board, and then leave if things don't work out, right? Um, and then, and then we lose that investment in, in the rank and final.
0: We have around twenty minutes left of the show, so at this time, we'd love for you to call us and talk to us, and you can. Please call us at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. We're in the studio with two labor organizers discussing the recent wave of labor militancy and new strategies at corporations like Amazon, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's. So give us a call with any questions you may have and tonight we are especially interested to hear from union members or people who are organizing their workplace so while we're waiting for calls i uh something i've been thinking about like i think through the course of this conversation is that so with this this theme this thread has come up time again about sort of labor's sort of reemergence, uh if it be in the if it be in the 30s or in the 60s or now like there's a how it comes how the the rises are are sudden they are they're burst, they' in, they're, in uh, they're, they're, they're rising but its declines are often very gradual uh, it, 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 it chips away over time and and of course so there's been a lot of discussion about like, well what was what is ultimately responsible for for the decline in, in power of of u s labor and and of course so that there are a number of sort of material conditions that people point to like a, the onset of globalization uh, deindustrialization. Um, but I, I was curious how much of that sh- decline is at the feet of of labor of of the established labor organizations themselves. Like, do you think strategy and organization have also played a role in in, in the decline in power of, of organized labor? That that that's for the crowd. If 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 everyone wants to, to take that, <laughs> have any comments?
3: I, so I, I, I'll say that, um, you know, like I said earlier, I, you know, I think the UE is is like um, helpful to look at, right? It's like a union that I have just the most respect for. Like I've learned a lot from their organizers. Like that is like the, one of the most militant, progressive, democratic unions that I think does it right. Like they literally like they can count back the people who like were trained by William C. Foster who trained them, right? The organizers there, right? And I think they still lost. I think, you know, because of conditions in their industry. Um, So I think the conditions can be overriding, um, but I still think there's a huge amount of room for agency. And unfortunately, in the labor movement, um, you know, there was a trend among among labor leadership where they basically said, like, we can't win anymore. And therefore, we're just going to cut deals with the boss. Right. So they naturally learned to this idea of like partnership and concessions, Um, you know, and I think the UAW led on it. Um, uh you know with the bailout of chrysler in 79 and 80 and what we've seen you know is is like a, a much steeper decline since then where unions gave up the fight you know to the boss um they no longer were even thinking of themselves as having adversarial interests with the employer which i think is an abandonment of trade unionism um and you know and and nothing good can come of that and nothing good has come of that right and i do think though like The campaigns that were run in the South, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, right, At Volkswagen, Chattanooga and other places, those were totally winnable, right? I think that like the conditions where they were right for them to organize and I think bad organizing got in the way and it was bad organizing began by a a corrupt culture. Um, We didn't know how corrupt at the time. But it turns out really corrupt, right? Because when you start making deals with the boss behind closed doors, it, it actually leads to like, you know, quid pro quos, which is, you know, we've seen over 14 people, I believe at this point, um, officials in the UAW that um, uh, have been uh, uh, charged and indicted um, on corruption charges, including two of the UAW's past presidents. Um, you know, so... Um, the labor movement has created a lot of problems for itself. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And that's not the fault of rank and file workers. That's largely been the fault of the leaders at the top. Um, and so, you know, an increase in democracy in the labor movement, an increase in engagement and participation, I think it's going to help clean it up. I think it's going to help make our unions um, more effective. Um, and I think it leads to good organizing, like we're seeing at Starbucks, like we see with the Guild. Um, you know, when workers are are in the driver's seat, that's when that's when unions win. And,
4: and building on that, I think we have to always be thinking about how do we build power in the long term? Like, you know, we see all these NLRB elections now. And in the back of my mind, I wonder, where will they be in 10 years? Will they be weak and nobody even knows they're in a union and they're decertifying their union? So, you know, I think a really depressing thing I've seen with all the various industries that I've organized in is that there's idea, there's still this persistent idea, really still in among union staff and in the labor movement, that when you win the election, that's the exciting part. And then reality sinks in and you just never get what you want and bargaining, right? And and everyone like just falls asleep. And it's very depressing and disempowering, right? And I have like members and workers that have been through elections with me just say as if it's a fact of life, oh yeah, the election is like the fun, powerful part, and then it just sucks and that's just how it is. And so I think we really need to resist that and fight that and believe that like workers can set up infrastructure where they're always communicating and always organizing around issues. You know, we've seen this, right? We've seen um, the IWW organized Ellen Stardust Diner, right? They, they don't have a contract, but they're always organizing collective actions among themselves on the shop floor. And so I think that, you know, in a sense like union staff and leadership, I think we're still letting workers down to this day because we, we don't think about the long term beyond the elections. And we just assume that it's going to be disempowering and depressing. And I think we have to have a bolder revision. It doesn't have to be like that. You know, I've worked with shops that... remain strong and they continue to communicate with each other and get wins and so i think that we need to push ourselves that we can build strong militant unions in the long term and then it could feel good and feel empowering like one of the reasons people do this work is because it's fun and it feels good and it brings them closer to their coworkers. no one wants to do something that it's a drag right i worked with a lot of shops where it's a drag guess what the one person involved in the union is one guy And that guy has a binder with all the grievances and he doesn't talk to his coworkers. Right. So this needs to be fun. It needs to feel powerful. And I think we, you know, with all these wins, you really need to think about how do we turn the moment into the movement for the long term.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we, we do have some calls on the line, so let's, let's get them live. But um, I do just want to respond to what you said, Stephanie, and and said, say that that's, a way that unions and social movements can learn from each other, right? Uh, many social movements uh, and social movement thinkers will talk about the value of joy, the value of self-care, the value of community care, the value of knowing who you're organizing with and building relationships with the people that you're organizing with so that there's something coming, bringing you back to it other than just we need to write this email or we need to um, go over this worker list. That There's something that you that you're getting out of it, that's that's feeding your life. And of course, that's also a huge part of labor history. Unions at one time were known for Thanksgiving dinners, bowling leagues, uh, children's camps, theater productions, all types of cool stuff that I personally would love to see come back. So um, we have about five minutes left in our airtime tonight. Let's see what our audience has to say. Can we get a call live on air?
5: Can you hear me now?
1: Yes, we can. You're live with Revolutions well, Per Minute. What's yeah, your
5: comment or question? Mem- I'm a, yeah, I'm a union member, and it's very important to understand your history. I'm, I'm pushing 80, so I've been around a while. But you guys have really got to understand your history, and I would suggest that we have term limits, not only in the union, of course, but in government. But in the unions, what happened is it got corrupt. You mentioned the corruption, and the mafia got in there, and greedy people get in there, and it, there's got to be term limits like fight that because... What happened in the 60s and 70s is the unions got destroyed by all that corruption. That's where it lost its power. Uh, I was in the Musicians' Union, which was corrupt as hell in the 60s and 70s, and a lot could have been done. Now, technology put us out of business with the tapes, but it didn't have to happen that fast. So I've got something else to talk about in terms of globalism, but you may want to address that first, the corruption.
1: Yeah, thanks for calling. Um, We're really happy to hear from uh, a union member and definitely happy to hear from somebody with long experience um, in unions. Uh, Chris, uh, do you have any response to the caller's point?
3: Yeah, I I mean, I'll just say that um, corruption absolutely is an issue in the labor movement. And um, I I'll just say that I don't know that term limits are are the answer. Um, I I don't think there's a silver bullet to that other than getting members directly involved in organizing their own union. Like so many of our unions aren't organized, uh, unfortunately. Um, And I've been a part of unions where because of term limits, there wasn't established um, rank and file leadership. And so it was just completely staff run. And then you have corrupt staff that run the union right? It's the tail wagging the dog. Um, So, you know, I I, I can see. I, you know, and some people would say, like, elections are term limits, right, if, you, if you're effective in them. Um, so that being said, like, you know, I, I just don't think there's one simple solution for everything, um, but I think that the ultimate solution to corruption is democracy, and, you know, however we get it, we, you know, it's going to have to come from the, from the rank file.
5: Well, I think term limits would go a long ways toward that. The, the, right, one
4: thing I I'll quickly ask? add is, oh, I, I will add that every, every time... I've seen it so many times a new leader comes in and I think finally now everything will turn around in our union. And I'm reminded over and over again that it's just not structurally possible for like one person in leadership to change things like the, you know, the membership needs to be supporting that person. No matter how amazing of a leader you are, if you don't have an atmosphere that's been created on the ground, you're not going to be effective. So every time I get my heart broken by a leader, I remind myself of that.
1: Thanks so much, caller. Um, Let's go ahead and see if we can get somebody else's voice and comments live on the air. We've got a couple minutes left in Revolutions Per Minute tonight. Can we get our next caller? Yes. Hi, you're live with Revolutions Per Minute. What's your comment or question?
5: Question. um, Are there any tangible things that you can point to with the new Labor Department under Biden and the uh, former union guy out of Boston, Boston Mayor, has anything happened with uh, getting the uh, the NLRB uh, board uh, uh, better equipped to handle the kinds of things that happen after an election and a, uh, a corporation or a company refuses to bargain, et cetera? And have they installed any of the new guys that they wanted to put in there? Or are they still dragging their heels? And can you point to any particular thing that the NLRB has done that says, okay, listen, there's a new sheriff in town, it's changed, corporations have to do X.
1: Thanks for that question, that's a really good one and I'm gonna throw it over to Stephanie to answer. Thank you.
4: Yeah, the I, I have some friends who work for the Federal National Labor Relations Board. This is it, this is the glory days. Like any social justice lawyer, they wanna go there, they wanna work there. The new general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, who uh, worked at Communications Workers of America, and then before that has a long history at the NLRB. Um, These are people that are committed to the actual uh, vision and purpose of the National Labor Relations Board, right, which is enforcing um, workers' rights. So, everything from, you know, in the new phase of organizing, issuing a memo saying, Uh, You can't have captive audience meetings. You cannot actually require workers to be subjected to intimidation and misinformation on the clock, right? When they're trying to unionize, Um, you know, once they unionize um, or when they're in the process of unionizing, if an unfair labor practice, if if their rights are violated, uh, you could try to impose bargaining, right? So I I think that this is probably like the glory days of the NLRB. I don't know that it'll ever get better. Uh, We still need to be organizing on the ground, but for once we actually have a labor board that's interested in enforcing the law and uh, being on the side of workers.
5: Where have they done it? Absol- I'm sorry, what? Where have they actually Where done have it? they done you, you, you so, it? I'll saw just say what, that right now, you saw the Starbucks campaign was done, right? Where they actually did this over and over again, made them come in sometimes twice a day. And where is the sanctions against Amazon for saying, wait a minute, you're not allowed to do that.
3: Yes, yeah, so board law is very slow. Uh, that's why we don't like to go to the board, right? Cause like, you know, uh, y- you know, if you, if you file a charge, they investigate the charge they're really understaffed, you know, you might remember that the board hasn't had like any ability to hire people in decades. Um, and Peter Robb, you know, the former general counsel, like just gutted the, the, the entire agency. Um, so I'll, I'll just say that, like, I don't think that we would have the Starbucks victories that we see today without this board, right? Like if, without the agents actively working to, to make sure that those campaigns that, you know, are having their, their. Quick elections.
4: Quick. The IWW tried to file for an NLRB election in Manhattan in the mid aughts and the Bush appointed NLRB said that you have to have all 200 stores in Manhattan. Right. So I think like literally the makeup of the board is what's allowing these store by store elections to happen. So there, there's ways that it matters. It's weak. It'll always be weak. But I, I do think this is the the best days for the board.
1: Absolutely. And that's something I've been hearing over and over again. And um, with the unfair and retaliatory firings that Starbucks has really gone scorched earth, the NLRB has come down on the side of workers repeatedly. You know, it's um, definitely seems like it's it's an ally in our corner. But as we've said throughout tonight's show over and over again, there is no substitute for real rank, rank and file worker militancy, organization, member engagement and democracy. So you heard it tonight on Revolutions Per Minute. You'll hear it again, certainly, but not in the rest of this hour because we're going to say goodnight and we'll see you in two weeks. This has been Revolutions Per Minute on listener sponsor WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM, streaming on your favorite podcast app. You can always connect with us after the show. Just email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find our past episodes, including some with Chris Brooks, tonight's guest, on revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com. We're also on Twitter at NYCRPM. Thanks again for listening. The union train is coming and you want to get on board. Solidarity forever. I'm Chris Carr. I'm Amy Wilson. Good night. (laughs)